Hush, 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 here comes the boogeyman. Don't let him come too close to you, he'll catch you if he can. Welcome to Boggart and the Banshee, a supernatural podcast. I'm Chris, the Relentlessly Informative. I study ghosts, Fortiana, fashion history, and death. And I'm Simon, Chris's worst nightmare. I study boggets, fairies, urban legends, and the impossible. On this episode of Boggit and Banshee, we're going to look at a brief history of fairy fashions. Okay, I I have a couple of different examples here that illustrate a... There's a basic dichotomy between uh, what I would call rural fairies and aristocratic fairy dress. So I'm going to give two examples that show that. The first one is from Savine Baron Gould. He says, one day a son of mine was sent into the garden to pick pea pods for the cook to shell for dinner. Presently, he rushed into the house as white as chalk to say that while he was thus engaged and standing between the rows of peas, he saw a little man wearing a red cap, a green jacket, and brown knee breeches whose face was old and wan and who had a gray beard and eyes as hard and black as sloes. He stared so intently at the boy that the latter took to his heels. The second one is a more foppish version of a fairy, I suppose you would call it. It's, it sort of illustrates how things got almost disnified in the early 20th century. Leprechaun is the name now universally bestowed in Ireland upon this merry little sprite. To a hair's breadth, he is just 12 inches in height. He is dressed in a little green coat with long dainty tails, a bright scarlet vest, the prettiest knee breeches of puce velvet you ever beheld with silk green hose, and low pumps with buckles studded with either diamonds or sparkling drops of dew. There's a jaunty cap on his head with the daintiest of pipes stuck under the band at one side and a jewel of emeralds in the form of a shamrock at the other. A film of lace made from rarest cobweb is gathered at his throat. Another foamy rift of the same rolls over the edges of his little vest, and he wears a wonderful fob of wrought and blazing gold. What do you think of, Simon, when you think of fairy fashion? Well, I'm not someone who is usually very interested in clothes or very good at fashion. And certainly, Chris, you know much, much more about fairy clothes than I do. But over the years, I've developed a private set of rules about fairy fashion uh, that I hope will survive me. So the first one is my uniform but not uniforms rule. The second is the Harrods rule. And the third is the retro rule. The uniform but not uniforms rule is that if you see 10 fairies, they will be dressed in a very similar fashion. And this is something that comes again and again in accounts, sometimes with the exception of a leader, a fairy king or a fairy queen. The second, the Harrods rule is, and this goes right back to our earliest records, fairies tend to have very attractive, wealthy, luxurious, rich clothes compared with those of the commoners who often see them. And then the third rule, that the retro rule, the way that if you see fairies, there is a very good chance they will be wearing the clothes of two or three generations before you. I don't agree with the second, because as I said, there's kind of a split between the aristocratic, beautifully dressed fairies, and there are more rural worker fairy type outfits. So my knowledge of 20th century fairies and particularly my work with the fairy census, is that that is correct for more recent fairies. I, I would go along with that. But I would challenge you, going back, say, before 1880, to find much evidence of scruffy fairies. I would also say that when you find fairies in, seeing fairies or the fairy census, that tend to be in what you call this more rural category, For me, they're actually often more extreme examples. They're sometimes dressed in rags. That's a word that's relatively Mm. often used. No, I'm thinking more of ones dressed, you would consider a traditional garden gnome with uh, breeches and a jacket and a pointy hat, sometimes boots. They're they're dressed like farmers or or workers. And I I would have to look at my dates to see if you're right about it being a later development. But I've pretty sure I can find some early examples. But I think what you're looking at also is, and we've 
where ordinary people out in the wild who suddenly encounter fairies do tend to see them in a more exalted state. They believe that they're the aristocrats, they're somehow special beings, and and that's reflected in their clothing. It's straight away we've come smashing into each other, fundamentally on the question of chronology. It's, It's hopeless here to pretend that fairy fashion is the same all through history. Absolutely. So why don't we just start at the beginning with this? If you were going to write your book on fairy fashion that I (laughs) and and tens of thousands of others would love to read, where would you start? Not with Sabine bearing Gould, I bet. No, no, not at all. Uh, But you would have to go back, of course, to very early medieval literature and look at the Arthurian legends and the Green Man and that sort of thing. Sadly, I've concentrated on later fairy costumes just because that's where I started. And I need to go much further back to get the early fairy fashions, which always do seem to copy aristocratic medieval clothing. There's a lot of green silk being worn, lots of jingling silk, uh, jingling silver harnesses and things. Uh, it always reminds me of a picture from like the Duke de Berry's May page in, in his uh. one of his uh, books of hours. Very elegant people on riding out into the countryside with their, their horses and their long sleeves. In preparation for today, I took a, a text from one of my favourite university books. This is the Mabinogion. It's not the four branches of the Mabinogion, but this, the text I'm about to read from would have been written in Wales in the 12th century. It was written in medieval Welsh. I'm going to read the translation. But just to give you a taste of what for me would be some of the earliest British references to the clothes of fairies. In this story, one of Arthur's knights has passed over into the other world. I approach the castle and behold two lads with curly yellow hair and a band of gold on their foreheads. And this is where I whisper uniform, but not uniforms. Ah. (laughs) And each wearing a tunic of yellow brocaded silk and boots of new cordovan leather on their feet with golden buckles fastening them around the ankle. And each had a bow of elephant ivory in his hand with strings of deer sinew and arrows with shafts of walrus ivory peacock feathered and golden tips on the shafts and knives with blades of gold and hilts of walrus ivy as targets. And he then goes on to meet the man who's clearly the father, a man with curly yellow hair in the prime of life, his beard newly trimmed and wearing a tunic and a mantle of yellow brocaded silk and a ribbon of gold thread in his mantle and buskins of speckled cordovan leather about his feet and two golden buttons fastening them. Now, when in a Welsh tale you ever meet anyone who is wearing silk, you know it's a fairy, essentially. Ah, okay. We don't have these texts going back really before 1100, at least not with these prose descriptions. So you can actually push the boundaries, at least in Britain, a little bit further back. And if we were going to be more daring, we could pass over the Irish Sea where there really are these stories perhaps even before the Vikings arrived. And there too, when you stumble into the other world, you have these exotic descriptions. And here the Harrods rule of my trio is alive and well. Absolutely, yes. Uh, It's like the Sun King with all the gold glittering on this particular entity that they've just described and his sons. One problem, Chris, that I always ask myself about these descriptions is what's happened to the retro rule. From the 1700s onwards, we find in accounts that fairies are wearing the fashions of a period of the past. And yet when you come to a description like this, we're not au fait with 12th century Welsh fashion. But to the best of my knowledge, there's nothing retro about this. Perhaps the retro rule as well is one that doesn't go all the way back. I think the earliest Jeremy Hartz looked at this and I think he said in 1680 and described the fairies as appearing like men and women of stature, generally nearer the smaller size of men. Their habits used to be of red, blue, or green, according to the old way of country garb with high-crowned hats. A little bit earlier than the 1700s. So, My earliest is 1798, 
Ah. Um, so, but Jeremy's pushed it back an entire century. Right, there. right. And as you hear, it's country garb. It's not aristocratic. It's old, old-timey farmer laborer garb. So now you said exotic, and that suggests the fairy costumes that we have pictures of by. They were drawn by Inigo Jones and others for masks, uh, for theatrical entertainments. And they're very, very exotic, very vaguely Turkish, vaguely Eastern, fancy dress with flowing draperies and veils. And some of the figures also wear very Boschian costumes that are all spiky and grotesque. And this is where I think we find the first wings, because there's stiff little moth wings on the ladies in these fairy masks. I looked into this, Chris, a couple of years ago, and it's a little bit dangerous to make assumptions here, because Inigo Jones did these images but it's not always clear what characters the images relate to in a given play. Mm-hmm. So we know what play they're from. And the assumption has been that these are fairy figures, but the assumption has perhaps been made by people who were expecting fairies to have wings in the 1500s and the 1600s and not knowing that this was actually a later development. Having said that, it's very possible that a couple of the fairy figures were given wings Uh, along with lots of other Elizabethan and Jacobean play figures. For example, when time appears on the stage, there were several personified figures that also use wings. But yes, there's a good case to be made. These are the first British fairy wings. I'm just wondering, as a sneaky idea here, I talked before about the retro rule, and you're saying that Jeremy's managed to bring this back into the 1600s. This is a reference I hadn't seen in that light, but I'm sure you're right. I'm sure Jeremy's right. Is it possible that what we get in earlier centuries, there isn't this sense of retro? So instead of pushing people back into the past, you exoticize them. In other words, instead mm-hmm. of putting temporal space between you and the fairies, right. you put actual space between you and the fairies. And I, I love this, the details of the Turkish dress and such like in the description from the Mabinogion, from one of the later tales in the Mabinogion, we have references to Spanish leather, uh, uh-huh. Norman silk. These are all things that would not be found in your standard Welsh aristocratic court. Is that a possibility? Hmm. Now, I saw the cordovan leather and the silks as more of a, look what we can afford. This is really quality, as opposed to exoticism, uh, because it was no, it was well known you know, that if you wanted leather, you went to Cordova. I see it as more of a, not as exoticism, but an example of these are high-end fairies. They can afford the best. They can afford the most expensive imported good. Interesting. All I can say is that if you read the stories in the Mabinogion, as I mentioned before, every time the word silk comes up, this is a marker that you've Uh, passed into the other world. But before we leave the Middle Ages properly behind, you mentioned fairy being mistaken for the Madonna. Yeah, we have Thomas the Rhymer who mistook the fairy queen for the Virgin Mary. You know, her shirt was of the grass green silk and her mantle of the velvet fine. All hail thou mighty queen of heaven. And I think this was a very, very natural mistake because at least in Catholic Britain and certainly in Catholic Europe, there's tradition of robing and crowning images of Our Lady in rich clothing and jewelry. Uh, some was actually contributed by the personal from the personal wardrobes of the donors. We've got coats and crowns and silver shoes for statues found in English church inventories. So when you look at the iconography of the costumes of fairy, it's very similar to that of the Queen of Heaven. There's crowns and stars and luminous garments and veiled veils with jewels and scepters or wands. So I think it's very natural mistake to think that you're looking at the Virgin Mary when in reality, here's uh, the fairy queen. I can't resist here just chipping in with a Mary encounter story of my own. I live next to a very large Italian wood with an important Marian shrine in it. And about four nights ago, I was walking in the wood 
Um, and I promise you that this relates ultimately to fairy fashion. Please be patient. But I was walking up a particularly hard bit of hill where I start puffing rather and losing my breath. And at the very top of it, there's a cross that traditionally good local Catholics kiss or put their hand on to get, I believe, 110 days off in purgatory. I just got to the top of the stairs and a little bit out of breath, slammed my hand on the cross and I turned to the right and I was just astounded to see the Virgin Mary approaching me. And there was a woman in long white gown with a luminous face. And my reaction... <laughs> Bear, bear with me, bear with me. And my reaction to this, and this reminded me of many folktales known to both of us where the Lord's name is said in vain. My reaction was to scream, Christ! <laughs> and of course, at this point, this is usually when all the demons disappear, but the Virgin Mary at this point continued towards me, but then she got a little bit shirty. And what I'd actually been looking at was a woman who'd gone to live with the monks in the nearby monastery, had gone out for an evening walk and had been coming back towards the cross looking at her cell phone. (laughs) And the cell phone had illuminated her entire face. Now, anyway, for me... For me, the, the real experience here is that I'm sure the Virgin Mary has 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 a luminous face in this way and that this might explain things. That's a wonderful story. <laughs> you can dine out on that for decades. It, it, it was it was quite a shock, I promise you. <laughs> I can imagine. It was it was dark, right? Yeah, no, it was almost pitch black. And so suddenly, oh. no, pitch black is too strong, but the white robes of this woman really stood out. and it. But it was the luminosity of her face. Well, and then yeah. when this absolute stranger in a dark wood screamed Christ at right. her, <laughs> then, of course, then, of course, she too reacted and the phone came down. Oh, my. Anyway, so, so all I'm saying to Thomas the Rhymer is he mustn't feel bad because we all make these mistakes. <laughs> exactly. I, I would love to see some sort of analysis of locations of Marian shrines in England, at least, and maybe in, in Ireland, to see if there's any higher incidence of fairy sightings in those locations. The, the, the valley where I live has it, the wood has real charisma it's a very unusual wood the wood that leads up to the marian sanctuary and the name of the valley the old name which still survives is the valley of hell and i suspect that this was the supernatural place on the edge of the village that was in inverted commas conquered by creating this marian shrine at the wow. top that would be my guests. And there was actually a ceremony held in the village up until 1914, where every year the best cow in the village was chosen. And then on the Madonna's Day in May, is it the second Sunday of May, they would have beat the cow up to the monastery. And there, essentially, they sacrificed it. They slaughtered it at the gates of the monastery and the blood was passed around so everyone could put it in their blood sausages. Oh, my. (laughs) <laughs> That's an interesting archaic survival. No, really, remarkable. Leaving the, the poor Virgin Mary behind, let's move to the question of colours. We've already, in previous episodes, clashed on the question of what colours fairies wear. So I know that you've come armed with science today, Chris. <laughs> well, well a database anyway. I've been looking, and this is absolutely incomplete. There, there are so many more sources to look at. Um, and as you've rightly pointed out, I need to arrange them chronologically so we get a better sense of what we're dealing with. But right now I'm looking primarily at 19th and maybe a couple 18th. And the earliest, I've got one or two Arthurian stories in it, but mostly it's 18th through early 20th century. And I've got 378 entries. 378. And that's that's just scratching the surface, really. I feel almost ashamed because it's incomplete. But Chris, can we stop you there? How long did this take? Um, An evening, maybe. Well, you just do keyword search. It it really didn't take very long. So anyway, 
But the what findings? The findings are green comes out on top. 115 uh, references to green. And I have eliminated uh, references to skin color. And I've eliminated references to things like orb color, because in some of the modern accounts, they have colored lights. So I only chose ones that were had actual clothing color. So we've got green at 115 entries, red at 53, brown at 38, white at 37, blue at 29, and gray at 21. You know, there's lots of modern stories. As you described, I really liked how you put it, um, uniform, but not uniforms, but not uniform, or vice versa. What I, I think my phrase is uniform, but not uniforms. In right. other words, this isn't a military formation, but they're more right. or less dressed in the same way. So there's lots of modern stories of flocks of fairies in multicolored outfits. They're identical outfits, but they're all different shades. But rainbows and sparkles are strangely missing from most witnesses' accounts. Those are, you know, something we think of as a cliche of modern fairy costuming, and yet actual witnesses do not describe those kinds of things. I, I find that quite, quite interesting. One impression I've had over the years with more traditional fairy accounts is that there's often a combination of colours. Um, mm-hmm. The classic one that you've already mentioned in the reading before is green clothes, a red cap. When I'm looking at the number, say, white 37 or grey 21, if there were two colours, did you count both or just the primary colour? I did count both um, because often they would say that the fairies were dressed in gray or in green. So they weren't dressed uniformly in all cases, but there was a variety of colors or they were dressed in green. Some were dressed in brown. There isn't complete uniformity, but I understand what you're talking about was a group dressed identically with different colors. And if you were going to go back in time, if you were going to go through the medieval accounts a problem that you would run into uh, is the issue of fairies actually having colors there are quite a few early modern texts and john clark has written an interesting note on this in the last fairy investigation society newsletter where you can see that there are different let's say tribes of fairies so there are the green fairies the white fairies the black fairies And to some extent, arguably, you can trace this all the way back into the early Middle Ages. Uh, We know, for example, that in Scandinavian sources, there was a distinction between the light elves and the black elves. Right, right. And yet that wasn't considered. I I don't really understand whether that is a reference to skin color, uh, because someone who was explaining about this said they're not good and evil, but it's because they're living in heaven or in the gloom. It's more to do with where they live as opposed to their character or their skin color. We have no idea about how to explain this. Some people have said it's a question of clothes. Some people give more a sense of the the fact that the body itself is colored in that way. So in other words, a Uh black fairy would have dusky skin or dark skin, uh, dark hair, um, etc. A red fairy would be sanguine, would have a very reddish face, a little bit like the fairy that we came across at the beginning um, of our first podcast from Wales. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so there are different ways to read this. And unfortunately, it's just one of these elements of fairy lore that I think is somewhat lost to us, but it must have had surely a reflex on clothes. Would you like to hear my statistics about skin color from my oh, database? Oh, oh, oh yeah, your, <laughs> yeah, I, your database is, is starting to, to threaten all my dearly held views of the world. The, the, just out of curiosity, is this database on an Excel sheet? Yes, it is. Uh, even worse. So roll them out. Tell us, <laughs> tell us about skin color. Okay, I've got 22 uh, examples of green skins. 17 example of brown skins, whatever that means, four of black, six of dark or swarthy, and five of blue, five of gray, five of red. Then there's some smaller ones with like a Caucasian or pink. There was one pink, one yellow. Uh, but for the most part, they they 
the green stands out as as the uh, most constant skin color interesting so green again comes out and just for anyone listening to this and thinking well these are probably more modern accounts that i think would be my reaction i do know of one account from yorkshire where the fairies in the late 19th century are described very precisely as having green hair, where there's no ambiguity. So this mm-hmm. is something that extends back into time. Just how common it was is a nice question, but it, right. it seems to be there, at least in part, in fairy culture. Well, we've got the green children also, and the green man, Jack of the Green, and then the green knight, even little green men coming up to the present day. My my preference for green would be if we really had to go down this road and start interpreting it, I would say that green is the colour of vegetation, it's the colour of fertility. And ah. I, I, I'm always a little bit anxious when people start giving an eco-gloss to our fairy right. friends. But I think this word fertility gets us out of that. It takes the fairies back to what they seem to have originally been the spirits of places and the spirits of places connected particularly to the fruitfulness of the land. And we have a couple of early modern comments along these lines. We have some fascinating Irish texts from the potato famine about the way that fairies have destroyed the potatoes and that conversely, the way that fairies can make, if they so choose the land, fruitful again. I look at it as the color of the uncanny and the color of death. Lewis Spence, I, I don't know how much we can trust him, says that British folk song, the color green is associated with the dead or with death. And I, of course, think of the greenish color of decomposition oh. and uh, blue bottles and things. Um, oh, but no. you've got the connection of the dead and the fairies. I'm never going to look at green in the same way. I would never connect green to death. I, I don't know if it yeah. had this sense in earlier texts, but Lewis Spence had a little bit of a hobby horse there. But personally, I rate Lewis Spence. I think he's to be taken seriously where fairies are to be concerned. What about the green mound? There are the green mounds of the burial ground and there's the green well, mounds of Lewis, the mounds. Lewis Spence <laughs> had this very strong idea that the fairies are ultimately the spirits of the dead. Perhaps he's right. That's not what they are in medieval texts. It's not what they no. are in early modern texts. Correct. And it's certainly not what they are today. But mm. if you start to trace these little lines of breadcrumbs in the fairy forest back into the past in as much as you can set up a trajectory i think there is a case to be made that that they're somehow connected to ancestor spirits and this idea that's still there in ireland in the 19th century that in many cases the dead go to the fairies right yeah and green is traditionally considered unlucky for humans. Yeah, I, I've seen some sources for that. Let's see, this was reported in 1922. Uh, green is worn by the fairy folk, for green is the color of eternal youth, and they guard it jealously against presumptuous mortals. There was a curious instance of this superstition in a Cornish fishing village a year or two ago. I've seen Miss A in a green dress, said an old villager. She'll be wearing black before many weeks are out. I'd never let none of my maidens wear green. And sure enough, within a month, Miss A was in mourning. Interesting. Then then there's a story from, again, this is a later one. In 1935, a New Zealand correspondent described how a woman from Wellington paid a visit to an old Scottish acquaintance. Uh, She was 86 years old. The visitor was wearing an all green dress. And the old lady said, you should not be wearing that dress. You must always wear a bit of blue or some other color with it. Well, why? She said, because green is the color of the little folks. They are always dressed in green and it is not right or lucky to wear exactly what they wear. When you go home, you should alter it. And meanwhile, she pinned a marigold posy on the dress so she wouldn't be wearing all green. I'm a little bit worried by the dates you've given there. I'd Yeah, I'd be much happier if there was something from the 18th or the 19th century. I do seem to remember an account about a Scottish aristocrat, I think in the late 1600s, or is it the early 1700s? And he's it's said that he's elf shot. But then there are other sources that claim the witches killed him. But one of the various details that gets mixed up with this is that he was wearing green. Ah, 
However, there again, I would not be surprised if our sources date to the 20s and 30s of the last century. I'd much rather see something that was older there. Interesting, though, the idea that green is the colour of immortality. That would take us back to vegetation. Vegetation dies away, but then returns. It dies away, but returns. Okay, well, I'll have to look and see what I can find, uh, if I can find an earlier type of source for, for unlucky Green. What about other themes with fairy clothing? We definitely find different themes. I mean, if you look at the, the fairy census, the clothing is all over the map. I, I frankly expected to find more tutus. I expected to find more Shifani anime type fairies, but I didn't. Um, there was just a lot of variety in the clothing. So that kind of surprised me. One, one thing that has always struck me is during the Victorian era, you have a lot of pe- uh, like the pre-Raphaelite, that's not Victorian, but partially Victorian, pre-Raphaelite painters, everybody was painting the fairies in medieval clothes, long robes and um, coronets and, and long sleeves and pointy shoes and that sort of thing. But the witnesses were describing fairies that were dressed in Georgian outfits perhaps just the decade, decades before, uh, maybe a hundred years previously. So that is always, I, I always wonder about the connection between media and how it's influencing people to, in what they see. I mean, we certainly have seen this with aliens. I look at media and I say, all right, people were imagining fairies in medieval clothes. Why weren't people seeing fairies in medieval clothes? Why were they in fact seeing them? dressed in 18th century outfits but you would agree that has changed that that's a Absolutely. good example so so Absolutely. their media has had its effect I think there's also another interesting question about our culture there and that is why does the West insist that fantasy has to be medieval in other words but ah. if, if you were to imagine a fantasy world and I was to say okay that's great let's Let's get a group of elves with muskets and some orcs with cannons. And <laughs> But you're laughing. It's just ridiculous. You wouldn't do this. It would be outrageous. You, you would have to go to rather exciting areas of non-Western culture, like, for example, the Ghibli cartoons, to find that kind of mix of periods. We have this idea that fantasy takes place in the Middle Ages and the fairies have been ghettoed, if you like, there. There's a couple of late 19th century sources that actually have fairies involved with gunpowder. And that's mm-hmm. something, I think that's something that just wouldn't really get past the censor today, the Fortean censor, that is. I don't think we would allow our imaginations to consider that. The Victorians seem to have created this mindset whereby fantasy has to take place in the Middle Ages. Not the Middle Ages as they were, but the Middle Ages as they should have been. And if you're out and about, you might see a fairy, but if you see them, they're certainly not going to be carrying revolvers or lugging artillery through the woods they'll in terms of arms they'll be very much in the middle ages uh, sword bow etc and so perhaps that's an example of this retrospective but like you say it's gone backwards it's not a question of victorians seeing georgian clothes it's a question of people in the 20th century looking back and seeing people from the 13th or 14th century mm. well you, you say the the fairies wouldn't be carrying muskets but there are those Spectral army sightings that seem associated with fairies, red-coated fairies, and they they are carrying what appear to be guns. Chris, we need another database. Okay, okay. we're, we're, we're gonna right. we're gonna have to get together our spectral army database because I disagree. There is one reference that I'm thinking of from Castle Andinus in Cornwall about an army, a fairy army. And there's this wonderful detail that the moonlight glimmered on their flintlocks. <laughs> and that, but and that's that's a great example of that. So that does happen. But I think if you look at the armies, I can't think of examples of them carrying muskets or rifles. But now you say it, I'm thinking of examples where they're drilling. And yeah. drilling is something I think we associate to some extent with gunpowder, isn't it? 
anyway, the point is that we could, what we can say about fairy clothing is it tends to be archaic in terms of 50 to 100 years out of date. And this goes back, I, I take it back even to the date of Sir Orfeo, the, the poem, where the fairy troops clothing was described as quaint attire as of days gone by. Although I admit I may be mistaken about the meaning of the Middle English word quaint. So that's on me. But as far as as I know, that's the earliest reference I can see. And it seems to me that it represents some sort of nostalgic lens. You know, you're hearkening back to those bucolic green fields where the fairies used to dance. Um, again, as you said, we're looking at an idealized version of the past. Um, and you find, as I said, class distinctions in the uh, two readings I, I gave at the beginning. There's the working class good people. They're predominantly male. They wear browns and grays of the rural laborer, sometimes topped with a red cap. And then we've got aristocratic fairies who are wearing Georgian court dress. The men are wearing silk suits, buckled shoes, cocked hats, and the ladies wear side hoop court mantuas, and they have powdered hair. Uh, there's also regional dress. We've got green kilted Scots fairies. We've got tiny ladies in Welsh national costume, complete with their tall hats, tiny tall hats. But the consistent thing I've keep seeing is this archaic notion and again jeremy hart has said that this is not uh an it's a not an early notion it really does happen more later and i and i can see that 19th century is where it has its apex really if we're walking out and we see fairies straight away we have to know that they're different and this is true of actual fairy experiences but it's also true of fairy stories there has to be a way that you signal the person having the experience or the person who's listening to the story that these things are different Um, and giving them older clothes or as I suggested very tentatively before, maybe just very exotic clothes Mm -hmm. or clothes where people are practically in uniform in a a society where that wasn't normal. All these are ways of saying these figures are different. Alarm bells should be ringing. We see something quite similar, and I I wasn't going to bring up UFOs, but you did, so I feel that you you opened the door. I started it. (laughs) You opened the door to this evil, so... But with UFOs, I think with alien culture, we see the same thing in the other direction. We meet these individuals and immediately they're projected into the future. They they belong to a different tradition. They have these science fiction weapons that may or may not make sense in some version of our world. We could talk about why it's the past and that would be interesting. But surely the absolutely key thing is that the fairies are other they are not us. Yeah, I agree. You you make a good point that it instantly identifies them as the other. And yet, why do they wear regional dress? Why are we wearing green kilts? Well, like- as any as any reader of Tintin knows, there are these two wonderful characters in Tintin, the Thompson twins. Yeah. Who, whenever they go to another country, they always wear the national dress of that country. Mm-hmm. And the joke is, of course, that they make complete fools of themselves because no one in that country would ever do that. And I suspect that national dress in an exaggerated fashion goes along those lines. In yeah. other words, that they're wearing clothes that mark them out as being a little bit different. And here, too, it would be tempting to bring up the, the whole idea of the men in black um, and the kind of <laughs> exaggerated 1950s FBI culture that they represent. Well, speaking of exaggeration, I mean, we think of the leprechaun, the Lucky Charms leprechaun, just such a cliche. And he's basically a decayed Regency buck. He's wearing tailcoat, breeches and stockings. And he was the stage Irishman. Now, I was always puzzled about this. Why in the world did Regency clothing come to personify the Irishman? Then I found out that they were, England was shipping bales of secondhand clothing of outmoded style to Ireland for sale. So that the once stylish late 18th, early 19th century tailcoats and breeches were being adopted by Irish wearers. So they, the actual people were wearing 
outmoded clothing. So I, I found that to be extremely interesting that it, it translated into the leprechauns, whole, whole sense of style. I mean, I can imagine a situation in which these clothes being passed on led to a new image. But presumably, when we read details of the leprechauns, their clothes are pretty snazzy. Going back to my Harrods right. um, point, that right. they're, they're wearing good clothes. In other words, maybe a sample of clothes being passed over from the metropolis or out of Dublin excited people in the Irish countryside. But the leprechauns who were met in encounters had, I imagine, impressive clothes. Right. Well, but even secondhand clothes could be impressive. If it was out of date, it was it's still silk. It could be and it, it might actually still have, you know, trimmings on it that or embroidery. It wasn't that it all the secondhand clothes were of bad quality. Mm. They were just out of style in England. Interesting. So. What about other items? We've talked about fairy clothes generally, but are there any other objects? The one that jumps to my mind are fairy ones that, in my experience, are a modern appendage. But could we talk about fairy shoes, fairy caps, of course, fairy hats? We've mentioned this with the leprechaun. Fairy coats, fairy crowns. Well, the hats, of course, are the, the magic hat that we find throughout fairy tales and myth and legend they they either make you invisible or they give you special wisdom so you can understand the language of birds or the language of fairies or they'll transport you somewhere with lightning speed and the red cap of course is the the classic gnome or fairy or elf hat i guess the red cap is kind of a nasty goblin uh, found on in border folklore he I, would soak his cap in the blood of his victims but then you've got the nissa and tomta of the scandinavians and they wear red caps and they're very very benign household creatures i think the red cap has been done a little bit of a disservice by catherine briggs who oh. gave us this version of a border bogey really the red cap yeah. but i've always wanted to write an article on this and, and chris maybe you've inspired me because i'm going to have some time in the next few days and i've meant to do this for years but we have several references from britain to a figure called the red cap it also gets tied up with witchcraft but, yeah. but for example in yorkshire there are a number of place names relating to the red cap there are a number of stories about this house spirit called the Red Cap. And there you seem to have something that is much more on the benevolent end of the spectrum. There's also a figure, I think, connected with mines, the Blue Cap. Oh. So you did have the these clothes could sometimes be used to identify different fairies. Yeah. Do you know the story about the fairy shoes? You've, I think you've written about the fairy shoes that they that were found by some shepherds. I was very excited by this a few years ago because there's this there are two or possibly three examples from Ireland where tiny shoes were discovered in the countryside and they were then put on display in two cases in local newspaper offices people would actually come and see them and pay a fee and immediately at this point we have to be suspicious um in all of the fortian books there's a photograph of one of these shoes with the comment that researchers at Harvard looked at the shoes, which I bet they never did. They looked at the shoes and said they were authentic or words along those lines. And made um, of mouse skin. And made of mouse skin. That's right. With this tiny microscopic sewing. I was very excited to find out that actually there are similar traditions from Nova Scotia. Um, oh. In Atlantic Canada, there are a number of fairy shoes that have been discovered there, and they're oh. made not of mouse skin, but of moss. And there's one extraordinary photograph of, of someone who kept fairy shoe from Nova Scotia in a test tube. And your hopes, of course, up to boiling point. And the photograph is of a test tube with some moss in it. That's it. The, 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 the shoe just disintegrated. But there seems to be this belief in local culture. And there I wouldn't be surprised if rather than a European idea being imported, it was something to do with First Nation fairy culture uh, that has survived in Nova Scotia. And at that point, it would be interesting to see if there were similar traditions elsewhere in the world. We need to do 
an, an episode on fairy artifacts, I think. Absolutely. There, there are so many interesting ones and so many enjoyably unconvincing ones. <laughs> yeah. A question that you brought up before was this whole issue of the way that the media understood very broadly influences what the supernatural experiences that people have. You talked about Victorian art, but of course, another perhaps more important in terms of the number of people who actually had and saw the experience were the question of Victorian plays, pantomimes, etc., where fairies were a huge thing. How did that influence how fairy dress is seen? It was huge. I always blame the late 19th century for the Isadora Duncaning of fairies, huh. all gauze and bare feet. But we had gauze and chiffon and spangles, all the fancy dress props of a Edwardian Christmas panto. And wings were optional for fairies until the Victorian theater, I think, um, when you had the filmy white muslin dresses and the tiny wings of a ballet, tiny wings of La Sylphide. It became the standard issue fairy dress. Also, later in the 19th century, technology uh, helped illuminate fairy fashion. They had electronic jewels. Uh, so you'd have a light up crown and a light up wand. And we had flying harnesses, Absolutely. so uh, the fairies could actually fly. But the visual vocabulary of white dress, wings, crown, and wand was standardized at this time by the theater and for fancy dress. So nothing to disagree with there, Chris, but would you say that's the last big change in terms of fairy clothes, or have we seen other things, other trends since? Oh, no, it gets better. Mm. <laughs> we can blame Theosophy and Cicely Mary Barker, who did the lovely and charming flower fairy illustrations. Uh, she also codified the notion that fairies were very uh, much nature spirits, as the Theosophists were saying all along, that they are guardians of nature. Uh, so we find a lot of rose fairies and daffodil fairies and <clears throat> all kinds of vegetation fairies and they all wear the appropriate foliage for their their garments this hasn't stopped today i sort of taking a little detour here the word fairy was synonymous with prostitute in the 19th century and this was something that didn't escape the notice of fairy artists uh, there are lots and lots of nude butterfly winged fairies. And yet the sensuality of fairy costume persists today. Now you can find the classic white robe and wand and crown and wings, but there's been a shift to a style that I call sexy guardians of nature. <laughs> They're lovely works of fantasy. Uh, they usually involve a lot of corsetry, a lot of chiffon, leaves, twigs, and silk flower petals. And you can you can buy these things like the flickering flower fairy that has LEDs in the skirt, or there's a black clad kind of goth midnight fairy, or there's a dragonfly or a rose fairy. You can also buy um, custom mermaid tails. I, I find this really fascinating. There's a whole mermaid culture. If you want a custom mermaid tail, it starts at like $3,400. Um, and you can buy handmade fairy wings with some even with pneumatic action that open and close. The videos are fascinating. So we've we've got sort of a sexuality involved or a sexualization of the fairy costume these days. Let, let me chip in there because I, I think you'll make more sense of this than, than I ever can. Sensuality seems to have always been part of the social supernatural, at least in Britain and Ireland. There are these descriptions of very impressive, beautiful, sensual women going mm -hmm. all the way back into these Irish texts that I alluded to before. There are hints of this as well in our Anglo-Saxon texts. So I would say the fact that fairies come across as these sexually exciting or beautiful or erotic creatures are not particularly something new. And I, I don't think it has to depend on the fact that fairy came to mean prostitute of right. anything. Yeah. It's the opposite. Opposite, yeah. The, the thing that I find a little bit disturbing is there seems to have been almost a division in fairy art and fairy works, where on the one hand you have the infantilization of fairies, and then on the other hand you have perhaps 
the sexualization of fairies. And sometimes there's even a danger that these two things start to cross over. And I don't know what the cause is of that. I, I see lots of anime that are involved rather sexualized, very young looking people, and it extends into the fairy stories as well. So I I don't know how to explain that. Chris, let's round off by talking about where our listeners can read more. As I was getting ready for today, I didn't create an Excel sheet of several hundred items (laughs) as you did. So I was a little bit stumped. And the only good thing I was able to find to read was your own article from maybe three years ago in the Fairy Investigation Society newsletter on fairy clothes. That, for me, was a useful introduction. But is there anything else you can advise people to look at? Well, I would advise them to look at the fairy census on the fairiest page because you can see firsthand what people are experiencing today, how they're seeing fairies dressed today and or in the last couple of decades, we might say. But there's so much material in terms of all kinds of any any book that talks about fairies is going to talk about clothing. Seeing Fairies by Marjorie Johnson, I was struck by a real emphasis on clothing and, and how the fairies were dressed. I don't know whether that was something that she specifically asked her witnesses about or whether that when they put the call for experiences in John O. London, if that was mentioned, but there's an almost obsessive interest in what the fairies were wearing. I I find that to be extremely interesting that uh, this particular book, Seeing Fairies from the Lost Archives of the Fairy Investigation Society, covers that in such detail. But then, of course, you've got the old classics like Fairy Legends and Traditions of the South of Ireland or The Coming of the Fairies or The Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries. All the old classics will have plenty of descriptions of the clothes of fairies. Um, the Traveler's Guide to Fairy Sites by Janet Board is also another very useful book. So with that, should we play out with a last reading, maybe an example of more modern fairy clothing, given that we've gone all the way from the 8th, 9th century through to the 21st century? Absolutely. And we've got this one from, again, from Seeing Fairies by Marjorie Johnson. This is an example um, collected by Marjorie Johnson. When I went to Coventry in Warwickshire to visit Mrs. Clara Reed, a Christian seer, she talked to me of her many visions of fairies and in angelic beings and said she'd often seen the nature spirits in Corley Woods not far from there. Some of them were very fond of the primroses and violets and had dresses made of flower petals. Others had tunics made from the barks of trees and seemed to favor the chestnut trees. They loved the beds of moss and hopped about, seeming very friendly with the birds. While staying at Cornwall, Mrs. Reed saw fairies many times, and one of these was a little fellow dressed in brown and green with a coat and cap of leaves. She had also seen water lily fairies with their pretty petaled caps and dresses. You've been listening to Bogger and Banshee, a supernatural podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please leave a review as it helps other people find us. Those cursed algorithms.